Welcome to the Overdrive Outdoors podcast, season three. And we couldn't come over this knoll to get any closer to them because their eyesight is so good. There's 11 of them. There's two lookouts in the cliffs above. We were just kind of pegged down behind this rock and we couldn't move. Where we discuss hunting and fishing. And I've had coyotes doing serenades on the run after two or three howls. They start howling, two or three of them. And you're trying to find them and they sound like, oh, you could tell they were running. Cooking and cleaning wild game. You know, when you go to the grocery store, you don't see the cow, you don't see the pig, you don't see, you know, you don't see the animal. Whereas in the woods, you know, you, I see Josh bring home the deer and skin the deer and pro- we process it together, you know, so you see it broken down. Whereas you don't know that when you go to a grocery store. So I, it is a lot of mental. Hits, misses, and everything in between. So he came into about 80 yards and then we dumped. Go ahead and say it. 26 rounds Ooh. before we finally killed it. 26 <laughs> rounds. Thank you for listening. This podcast brought to you by Predator Hunter Outdoors. Locally owned and operated out of Attica, Michigan, Predator Hunter Outdoors will keep you hunting when the sun goes down. Predator Hunter Outdoors has something for every budget and experience level, including lights, night vision, and thermal, as well as a full line of tripods, mounts, and predator calls. Look them up on Facebook and Instagram at Predator Hunter Outdoors, or visit their webpage at www.predatorhunteroutdoors.com. Enter the promo code LIGHT for 20% off light products and TRIPOD for 10% off tripods and mounts. Want to lengthen your time in the field and shorten your scouting time? Not only does the HuntWise app show you property boundaries, landowners' names, and in some cases even their phone number, but using the app will show you the wind direction on the map of the place you want to hunt. And the HuntCast feature shows peak movement times for various species, including predators. Get the HuntWise app at www.huntwise.com, the Google Play Store, or the Apple App Store. For only $59.99 a year for Pro or $119.99 a year for Elite. Use promo code OVERDRIVE20 for 20% off an annual membership. Morning, everybody. Welcome back to the Overdrive Outdoors podcast. And today I have myself, Kevin. We got co-host Josh Mapes with us. And today we have special guest, Mr. Tim Wells. How you doing today, Tim? Great, man. Great. Good to talk to you, boys. Really appreciate you taking the yeah. time and getting on here with us. Um, I know we tried to touch base a few different times, but hey, we got it together now. <laughs> well, between me not being computer savvy and traveling all over the world, it makes it difficult. Well, I bet. That's one thing I figured is you have a pretty hectic schedule of everything you have going on. Um, so let's go ahead and get right into it. Um, when you were growing up, did you come up in a family that hunted? Oh yeah. Uh, ever since I was little, I was eating wild game with my family. My grandpa was a huge influence over my life. He, uh, him and I laid in a cornfield duck hunting when I was five years old a lot, you know, I'd take my BB gun and, you know, the old mallards would come in, we'd shoot up in the air at him. I'd shoot at him with the, the BB gun and he'd always tell me I hit one. So <laughs> <laughs> I knew I never, but I knew what grandpa was doing, but I always went with it anyway. It was part of the fun. And, uh, we got a lot of, a lot of good, good t- times and good memories growing up and it developed into bigger and better things. And, uh, he, he liked the bow and arrow and he, he made the arrows for me when I was little and, 
uh, taught me how to shoot a bow a little bit in the backyard. All we had was a recurve, uh, actually a stick bow. And uh, my first uh, kill was a rooster when I was about six years old. Uh, his prize bandy rooster come chasing a hen around the around the chicken house. And uh, when when he did, he ran into me standing there at full draw. And he stopped and looked at me. And I'll never forget when that arrow hit him right in the neck and he flipped over on his back and started kicking his legs up in the air. I was like, that was my first kill. So uh, Grandpa was pretty excited about that. And I was taking my picture with a rooster and everything. But anyhow, from there, I uh, I just uh, progressed further and further with uh, my, my grandpa as well as my dad. And uh, uh, led to a, a nice a nice life now you're in illinois now right yeah unfortunately i'm stuck here with uh uh the pit of liberals is that where you <laughs> grew up yeah yeah i i live uh, about 20 miles from where uh, i grew up but uh eventually i bought uh farms around the area that i live and my dad still owns uh the uh, farm that i lived that i lived on as a kid so um, you know, this is my home where I do a lot of my whitetail hunting and, uh, I do a lot of duck hunting here as well. And, uh, probably stay here until, you know, my parents are possibly gone before me. And then when that happens, I may go to Texas. Oh, Texas. Okay. Well, there's a lot of opportunity down there. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got a lot of friends in Texas and I do love Texas. So does my wife and, uh, the hunting's good there year round. It's getting pretty hot down there, but, uh, you know, nine months of the year, it's a nice place to be. What do you love the most, Mr. Wells, about Texas that would make you move there? <laughs> uh, well, I like uh, the conservative uh, nature of the people that live there, and, and the the, the uh, hunting is obviously amazing. I like it there because I can spear hunt a lot of animals there and use my blow gun and and, you know, shoot my blowgun at fish and there's a lot of bow fishing opportunity and there's, it's just a, an abundance of wildlife. And, uh, the, I like the desert. I love the desert. I, I would rather hunt animals in the desert more than anything. And, uh, Texas has all that. The only thing I don't like is the heat in the heat of the summer, but, uh, uh, I wouldn't stay down there year round anyway. I can move around and come back up here, but that's just uh, a possibility. It may never happen. Hopefully, it does though one day. Right. And the heat, the heat. When I went to New Mexico in 2019, I was told it's a dry heat, and I don't know who came up with that, but that is BS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a. Uh, you know, a lot of people say are doubters about global warming. Well, I don't doubt it. I mean, I, I know that the earth is getting hotter, but whether or not we created it, I'm very skeptical about that. All these forest fires and volcanoes, you know, they have more effect on our climate change than, a, than we ever will with motorized vehicles and power plants. But uh, what, you know, they can fuss about that all they want. I, I, I do agree that the, we're getting hotter though. So, yeah. uh, and it's a dramatic effect when you're, you know, go from 101 degrees to 105 to 107. That starts to make you really wonder what's happening, you know. And uh, hopefully that trend uh, is way more gradual than the effects we've been seeing recently. So I don't want it to affect the wildlife that I hunt. So I'm great. Uh, great. Oh, my whole life I've been uh, 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 concerned about the well-being of the wildlife and you know conservation is 
probably my priority uh, beyond my hunting, uh, which that doesn't sell well on TV. So you don't see my conservation efforts uh, too much on TV, but that's, you know, where uh, I, I, I hold the highest value when it comes to the outdoors, you know, making sure that I take care of the properties that I own, that it's uh, well uh, groomed for the wildlife. And, you know, if, if I drove, drove an electric car and it would help wildlife, I'd do it, but I don't believe in uh, that it will. And uh, matter of fact, I know it leaves a, a worse carbon footprint than a gas car. So and I'm still driving my Ford truck and uh, mm-hmm. having a good time uh, here in yeah. Illinois. And uh, hopefully we're not going to have any deer death this year because uh, EHD may hasn't hit yet. And we've been getting a lot of rain. So we got a promising season. Sydney and I and Clint have been looking at some really big bucks on our trail cameras. So maybe uh, come December when my whitetail shows start airing, you'll see some big boys getting slocked. Nice. Now, I, on something you said there, you said that conservation efforts don't sell well on TV. That's kind of sad to hear you say that because without the conservation efforts, you probably wouldn't be able to go do nearly as much hunting as you do. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, when you sit down on your couch with some chips and a glass of milk, you know, you can talk about conservation. It's it's not very entertaining, but we all know we need it. Right. And, uh, but people uh, tune in not to watch me uh, going up and down the, the field with a, a tractor planting prairie grass. They'd rather watch me throw a spear into a wildebeest. So that's all I meant by that. <laughs> that's, that's true. Makes sense, yeah. Um, so when you were growing up, uh, you mentioned, you know, doing waterfowl hunting and deer hunting. When when you got a little bit older, did you do any traveling to hunt with your family before you really got oh, into it? Well, you know, I uh, uh, even in uh, as I, I was I, in high school, my dad and in junior high, my dad, every summer we'd load up and we'd go up to uh, Minnesota uh, or Wisconsin and Pelican Lake and we would fish and that was our summer adventure was to go fishing um, and then uh, once I got in high school my dad started taking me out west uh, we killed our our first turkeys in Wyoming and then uh, uh, he took me to the Badlands we hunted antelope with the bow and arrow and um, yeah yeah it was all good and then I got into predator hunting uh, in high school because the first coyote showed up in Illinois about that time and what, what, uh, what year was that Tim roughly uh, that would have been roughly 1980 uh, that's when the coyotes really started to move in to, uh, you know actually it was earlier than that to tell you the truth it was uh, junior high uh, so it would have been like 19. 19- 78 somewhere in there that's when i started uh we started seeing and hearing coyotes on the farm you know so uh at first my dad wouldn't let me kill them because they were kind of special you know it was we'd go outside in the yard and listen to them howl and my mom would howl and they'd answer up on the north end of the farm we thought it was something great that showed up little did we know that the rabbits and quail that we loved and the fox hunting that I loved was going to take a major catastrophe. It was going to be a major catastrophe for them. So, but at the time we didn't know that, but anyway, it evolved into coyote hunting and trapping. And my grandpa was a good trapper. He he trapped with me a lot when I was a little boy and uh, he knew how to catch foxes. So it was a good transition right away to catch coyotes. And, uh, then I, I figured out how to call them with my natural voice. 
Um, didn't even know there was electronic calls at the time. If I'd had a Fox pro, I would have wore them out, but <laughs> by calling them with my voice before Fox pro really came along, um, uh, you know, ever once I was in college and I would go into the, the timber and call, I would kill, uh, like on a good morning in Illinois, I could kill four or five coyotes if I hunted till noon. Uh, that's just not possible, no matter what call you're using now, even though there's five times as many coyotes, you know, they've just been, uh, they've been taught by us predator hunters. And uh, so it makes it very difficult to kill them now, but I still kill quite a few. Now, when you're growing up and through that, when you started traveling and hunting and all that, are you, did you consider yourself primarily an archery hunter or did you have a balance with, you know, shotgun, rifle and archery? Well, I was primarily bow hunting and using my slingshot and stuff, but, uh, I did do a lot of duck hunting and loved that. And I hunted whitetails with my dad and my grandpa with a shotgun up until I was, uh, in high school. And then I kind of lost my taste for it and started bow hunting. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, it was, uh, I always loved bow hunting the most and spear hunting, you know, when I was a kid, I speared everything I could under the sun, which wasn't much, but usually it was homemade spears. I was walking the creeks and spearing, uh, frogs and, and chubs in the creek. And then I'd go down to a bigger creek that come off that branched off the Illinois river with my, the neighbor boys. And we'd try to spear carp. And, and if you got lucky on a Saturday morning, when my grandpa got home from working at the coal mine, he'd load us up in the truck and if the carp were spawning or the buffalo, we'd go down and spear carp and buffalo and uh, uh, rice lake along the Illinois River, which was my favorite thing in the whole world to do. <laughs> That's kind of just a little bit about what I did. And then uh, uh, in high school, I I tried to spear deer and stuff every chance I could. It was illegal, but at the time, uh, wasn't too concerned about the popo. So that's what I would do. I thought to myself, I thought, you know, there's nothing wrong with this. It might be illegal, but what am I hurting? You know, when uh, gun hunting is so hard on them anyway, and bow hunting, you know, is what it is. So I spear hunted as a boy that I thought it was fine. And my grandpa thought it was fine. My dad thought it was fine today. We still think it's fine, but uh, you know, sometimes the laws are different than we believe. And, you know, you just got to contend with it. So yep. based on what you said there, you started off obviously shooting instinctual with your bow, right? Yes. Yeah. And I never have had sights on my bow. I played with some of my friends' bows with sights and that it wasn't, no, uh, wasn't anything for me. So I've been shooting instinctive my whole life. Oh, okay. That's what I was going to ask next is if you're still shooting strictly instinctive. Yeah. Yeah. That's that blows yeah, my mind. That blows my mind because I love watching your shows where you're shooting coyotes running by with your Oneida bow. And it's like, I can't, I missed them with a 12 gauge. I missed one. I might've missed one two nights ago with a 20 gauge at like 25 yards. But Tim well, Wells is watching them run by in the brush and still double lunging them as they run by. Don't believe everything you see on TV. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I really enjoy shooting my Oneida bow. Uh, it's a Phoenix it's fast and, uh, but it draws and shoots, I uh, just envisioned, uh, shooting a recurve that's, uh, you know, got a 70 pound draw, but yet you don't have to feel all that stress on your fingers and your arms when you draw it back. And, uh, that's what an Oneida is like. I mean, it is a fast shooting recurve, 
that feels the same way in your hands, only it's not, it doesn't make your whole body shake when you pull back 70 pounds. I mean, it's smooth as glass and it's a deadly, deadly instinctive weapon. And they've been around yeah. for a long time. Yeah, they have, but the Phoenix bow, uh, hasn't it. That's their, their newest development that, uh, uh, that just came around about the time they started sponsoring me. And I was one of the first to shoot the prototypes and, um, yeah, it's a, it's a really fun bow to have. So you're still shooting fingers then too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I make a, a shooting glove uh, that I sell and I just wear a little thin glove. It's, it's a nice little, uh, glove that you'd use if you wanted to golf or something like that. So you don't need a lot for an Oneida cause you got a long draw, uh, length and uh, so there's no pinch and uh, it, it's a pretty good little bow man do you do a lot of shooting i mean it doesn't really seem like you really have an off season per se but do you do a lot of shooting in between your hunts to maintain your shooting skill not so much not not so much i mean um i will shoot if it's a serious bow hunt like if i'm going to go hunt predators in africa or something like that you know we're uh, it, it, there's going to be some stretched out shots, you know, I'll retrain my brain a little bit and get out in the yard or do a little stump shooting, you know, uh, and then if I'm going to, let's say Argentina to duck hunt, you know, I don't want the first day to be a disaster. So I'll get out in the yard and, uh, Sydney and I or Clint will throw some targets and do some wing shooting or maybe go about back and shoot at blackbirds flying by and stuff and, and re retrain my eyes. Do you get into the Asian carp a lot in Illinois? I know a lot of people that go there for the Asian carp to bow fish them. I would assume you would be pretty good at hitting a fish flying through the air. <laughs> oh, I have did that a lot. And I, when that yeah. first, uh, when they first arrived and they got to the point where they're 10 pounds or so, yeah, I would go to the river in the summer a lot. And I actually had a boat just for that. Matter of fact, I just sold that boat that I've had for forever it was a war eagle tough son of a gun i've hit sunken barges running up and down the river shooting them thing them fish out of the air and my kids love it as just like i do but i tell you once you've been batted around in that boat by them fish long enough smashing into your head and so forth i mean it's still fun but I, once you shoot a few thousand of those dang fish out of the air, it's, 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 it's still fun, but it's not what it once was. And I, <laughs> right. I see that it's kind of a trend that's kind of worn off, you know, people, yeah. you don't see that man when it first started and Chris Brackett started doing his videos and we all got into it and I started doing videos. I mean, it was nothing to go down on a Saturday and there'd be four or five boats cruising up and down the river where we shoot them, shooting them. And now you'd be lucky to see anybody doing it now. Are there still as many Would, of the Asian carp around there? There's not as many and they're not uh, as big as they once were. It's because the commercial fishermen have figured out, you know, it's a good market. I mean, they can make, over, you know, an individual commercial fisherman can make six figures easily a year if he stays at it. And they really, they have had a, an impact on the fish. And, uh, but there's still plenty of them to shoot, but it's not like it once was, uh, which may be a good thing for the river and good, good thing for them boys that catching fish and selling them and good thing for the market, you know. Um, but uh, it's just not quite what it was. But some of the other rivers, the Ohio and the Mississippi, uh, you know, I can't, um, I can't vouch for that area. I don't know how it is, but I've heard the same thing. They're, they're hammering them pretty good down in the Kentucky Lake. 
I got a friend down there that Jim Ed, he, uh, he's a heck of a, a, a commercial fisherman. And he said that, you know, they definitely have an impact on the fish. I bet. When, uh, how old were you when you started getting into the whole filming aspect of it? Well, when I was in, uh, high school, uh, like by the time I was 14 or so, um, my dad had a little video camera that he bought me because my grandpa was a photographer and, uh, matter of fact, grandpa was constantly taking photographs of, uh, you know, me and, and himself and everybody when we were hunting. Uh, so it was a little bit in my veins anyway, but, uh, matter of fact, grandpa, uh, invented the, uh, trail camera. I still tell everyone that today. I wish he'd have patented it, but he never, at the time he went and put a dang camera. Uh, he had some kind of, he had a fish bowl. It was a glass fish bowl. He had it on a trail and he put a camera inside that thing. So it didn't get ruined by the rain. And then he had a, a fishing line connected to a tree over over to his camera on the button on the camera and uh i'll never forget he brought that he was so excited because uh something had got its picture taken on a deer trail there wasn't a lot of deer back then i mean just seeing one made news so but we lived in an area where they had strip mine and it was really rugged rough country with a lot of brush so we had some of the first deer in 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 there in central illinois living on our place but uh anyway he uh he came back and had that developed and I was, I was all so excited. We were all excited. There was a, the, the butt of a deer in the photograph. He had gotten this <laughs> picture of this deer walking down the trail and got the back half of him. And, uh, so, uh, you know, it, it, he had the first trail camera and he was an innovative guy, very, very, uh, smart. And he liked to make things and he, he was a flint napper. He made arrowheads and he built, uh, built self bows and uh he loved guns and he was always wrenching on his guns and you know i'd see him out in the yard when i'd stop in to see grandpa he'd be sitting there with a shotgun in the middle of june sitting on his uh lawn chair you know rubbing oil on it or doing something you know so he loved he loved hunting and he loved guns and uh he sure loved me <laughs> That's good. What, what made you decide to get into it, you know, with the relentless pursuit and actually more or less going big time yeah, with it? Yeah. What, what, what drove you into that? Well, I, um, I was uh, always have been a writer and uh, I wrote a book when I got out of college. And um, at one point, you know, I was still filming a little bit, but the back then, I mean, everything was so grainy and terrible, but with the kind of cameras that you could afford when you're that age, you know, to, to buy and use a camera that would have been crystal clear or not crystal clear, but clearer than most, it would have been uh, astronomically expensive for a 20 year old kid, you know, but at the time I was, I did write and, uh, uh, after college, uh, North American whitetail and bow hunter magazine and, uh, Buckmasters, these, 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 uh, these magazines were buying my articles. And so I put a book together on whitetail hunting and, uh, started going to the, sh the shows and I was selling a few books and, and my, my, uh, career in the outdoor industry was starting to bud. And, uh, but one day I noticed this guy that had a line of people 
you know, they must've been 40, 40 people deep and they were handing him $20 bills. Maybe it was 10 at the time. I don't remember, but he was selling VHS copies of his video. And I was watching this guy and I was doing my math on all the money that dude was making, you know? And so I went and talked to him and he was talking about whitetail hunting and he, uh, he sold white, he sold whitetail hunting videos. And the guy's name was Noel Feather. And uh, Noel was the, the, the coolest dude in the world, man. He was just took me under his arm and talked to me about videoing and everything. And he filmed with Dan Fitzgerald once in a while. But, you know, he uh, Noel got in trouble for some stuff he did. But anyway, uh, you know, I don't know where Noel is, if he's still alive or he's out hunting, what's he's doing now. But uh, I got to thank him for, you know, being such a kind fella to me. And so I got a, I finally broke down and got a good camera and, uh, by golly, uh, a couple of years later, I created my first VHS. It was called lethal flight and lethal flight. The best of my knowledge, uh, sold more copies of lethal flight than, uh, any video that's ever in the hunting industry it sold 563,000 copies. Wow. And that was the first that was the first video I ever built. I mean, you couldn't sell 500 copies of a video or a CD now if you wanted to, because everybody watches everything on YouTube. But at the time, videos were the gas, you know. Unfortunately, though, I didn't make much money on that thing, even though I should have. Uh, a little a, a distributor bought it from me, and I didn't know anything about scammers or anything like that. But he made a deal with me where I got 50 cents for every one I sold. And... Uh, well, he went to reproducing them and every come and go gas station had a bargain bin, uh, video box and my, my, anyway, 560 some thousand of them sold. So, uh, and I didn't get paid for about a 10th of what sold, but in the end, you know, uh, I didn't know enough about threatening to sue people <laughs> <laughs> that didn't go anywhere. So I lost on that deal. So I learned a lot about business while I was growing up and that was one of the hard knocks. Uh, so, uh, anyhow, that, that's, a, that's, a, uh, uh, a step in my career that took me from that. Uh, then a, a guy named Wade Sherman called me. Uh, he uh, was kind of like the founder at the time of the Outdoor Channel. And he, he asked me uh, if I would uh, air my show on his network. And uh, so I did that. And at the time, Fox Network was airing my show. It called it the Sportsman's uh, Game Bag. It was the name of my show. And then it, later, I, I wrote the book Relentless Pursuit. So I named the, the next series that I created Relentless Pursuit. And it's been airing now for almost 30 years. When you first did that first VHS tape, did you do all the filming and editing yourself? Yeah, yeah. It was my, me and my buddies. <laughs> okay. Uh, whoever I could get to carry the camera behind me, who usually got cussed out when we got back and looked at it on the TV. <laughs> but uh, we had... Uh, we had a lot of a lot of good times, you know. Uh, my buddy Jim Crane and Jim Thompson, uh, these guys filmed for me, and uh, we uh, we made a lot of good memories. Uh, Mikey Foster and Mikey Shirley, all these guys have been called all kind of names, but uh, they stuck with me through all the hardship and and uh, created a, a you know a huge fan base that that's with us today. Now, we actually you, had somebody that uh, worked with you for a little while, Mr. Scott Hampton, on our podcast, what, about a year ago, Kevin? 
give or take yeah. a little while a little yeah. while he, he had all kinds of stories to tell about how fun it was to hunt with you so yeah yeah i try not to let anybody know that i associate with scott but you know <laughs> just out there you know but uh right. anywhere you go with scott you're gonna have fun i tell yeah. you what he's a good dude and uh he taught me a lot about coyote hunting i tell you i have uh the first few times i hunted with him i he 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 was really hard for me to adapt to his style of hunting because if he'd see a coyote coming, he'd lean, he'd look over and go, get ready. Here comes one. He'd talk out loud, stuff like that. And that was so foreign to me because I was always afraid that the coyotes would see and hear me and stuff, you know, but, uh, you know, eventually I started realizing that once they lock into the call and they're coming hard, it, you can shout at them or whatever, and they're coming either way, you know, and, uh, I killed a lot of coyotes and bobcats with Scott, uh, shooting them over his dogs and shooting them over the call and the Fox pro. And, um, and then we did some other stuff I can't talk about, but he sure is a fun guy to hang out with. <laughs> yeah. Now, do you still have, do a lot of self-filming or do you have a crew with you now? Or at least a couple of guys. Sixty-five to seventy percent of my hunts are all self-filmed. I just uh, everything I do is anymore. Not everything, but a lot of what I do anymore is primitive hunting. So, um, you know, the animals I'm killing are so close they can smell my breath, and it just it's it's so hard to do it anyway. Uh, when you double your your danger and throw two people in a tree or two people sneaking up on something. I just have a heck of a time making that work. So uh, with today's new GoPro 10s and stuff like that, you know, that I have available, um, I can create world-class video uh, by myself now. And I really like, I like the challenge of it. And when it comes together, it's something to be really proud of. I agree. You know, that's one of the things that I've really appreciated about the stuff that you put out. One, I love your narration. I think you do a great job with that plus a video quality, but then just the fact that, like you said, you're getting so close to your, the animals you're targeting that, I mean, any skilled hunter, I think would look at that and say, damn, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's hard and, and it's impressive when it works, but you know, <laughs> one that doesn't work, doesn't make TV. So right. I mean, sometimes I believe people have a false impression of my skill level, but, uh, whatever i'll take it <laughs> <laughs> sure now, you've hunted all over the place i mean i know i've seen you in africa i've seen you all over the u.s um what was your favorite place where you went and hunted um you know ever since i was a kid i love shooting birds with the bow um and argentina has got to rank up there in the probably top five places you know that i like to go because you can wear them out down there. There's so much game and so many birds and ducks. And yeah, I, I really enjoyed the opportunity to go down there. I hunted with uh, a guy named uh, Lynn Thompson who owned cold steel and he introduced me to uh, Argentina and flew me down there where I shot pigeons and does with him for 10 days. And uh, man, that really honed my skills and uh, uh, made me a believer in, 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 in the new types of arrows and stuff that I was using. And that's from there, it led to, I started building my own flu flu arrows and build my own broadheads specifically for flying birds and turkeys. You know, it's versatile and shoot their heads off or you can shoot birds out of flight. Now I have the head hunter broadhead and I build a six fletch 
um, flu flu arrow that is specifically for birds. And uh, so it gives me reason to travel and shoot birds now because I'm, you know, generating income by selling these products that work really good. But man, when you when you got a dove smoking by you at 30 yards and up and he's cruising by and that arrow leaves your bow, you're leading him 15, 18 feet, depending on how fast he's flying. And that thing arcs across the sky and smokes him out of the air. It's just there's nothing. Like it. It's just there's not a better feeling. Maybe a coyote. I love that one. <laughs> Maybe a coyote. I love that when I see that bird fly by and a, a puff of feathers after your arrow goes like, oh, you got it. <laughs> yeah. Pretty awesome. It's pretty fun. Remember an old Mallard Drake coming down too is pretty exciting too. Oh, are any of those places that you've traveled, um, do they all seem to be pretty friendly towards hunters? Or have you had some difficulties dealing with like, you know, the officials or the political climate, any of those countries? Uh, socially, Europe is a terrible place for hunters. Uh, that is, they're about as liberal in Europe as anywhere you'll ever get. Uh, they're, 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 there's a lot of hunters in Europe, I mean, that want to hunt hogs and so forth, but they are constantly harassed by the non-hunting crowd. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's a hostile location there. There's no place more hostile, though, than California in my my. Uh, experience i hunted uh around la for jackrabbits with the bow i was calling jackrabbits and i couldn't believe that the harassment that we received and the vile things that were being said by passer buyers that would see us with a bow in our hand and things so that would be the most you know uh i'm i'm aware that there's danger in mexico but i've never encountered it i've had nothing but warm receptions in mexico and Africa and Mozambique. I, I uh, had pygmy trackers that uh, had come in there and I got to share camp with them. We ate baboon one night and one of the pygmy trackers was eating it. And the translator said, when he looked at me and talked to me, the translator said that he said, it's really, it's it, the hind legs are really good. It tastes a lot like human. And when he said that, <laughs> I slept with one eye open the rest of the <laughs> Sorry, but that was an enlightening moment for me. <laughs> Never ever felt in danger until I was in the forest with my spear. That's where it was dangerous, and it wasn't from humans, you know. But wow, yeah, Europe would be uh, Europe and California. I would say was the most uh, anti-hunter environment I've ever been in. But California, uh, you know, Canada, as we all know, uh, is uh, under. Uh, a sad time as well you know their their president is just uh he's a liberal prick and he's trying to ruin hunting and conservation and uh he's he's just like he's just like biden but worse right. well yeah one of the things that comes to mind with that is that from what i understand kevin we talked about this the other day a little bit it sounds like they're canceling all the funding for hunter safety related courses and stuff like that through the united yeah, states it's like you know the you can't get funding now for trap shooting in the high schools and uh yeah anything to do with our nap programs and so forth uh they're going to cut that out and uh uh that's just another way to dig at us you know and that's sad because like even for me hunting hunting and my wife kind of saved me I feel like you know because I found something I was passionate about 
And to to cut that out and not make it even a possibility for some of these kids is it's just not good. That's crazy. Pretty crazy. You know, when I was in high school, I shot on the trap team and I walked down the hallway with my gun in my case and my box of shells over my back, threw it in my uh, uh, threw it in my locker. And then after school, the dean of students would pick me up and throw me in the the van and we'd carry the guns out and head on up to the trap range to shoot every Thursday night. <laughs> We've come a long distance, uh, since them days. And, uh, it's a sad journey that we've made in, in terms of, uh, you know, where we're headed. Now, I've watched a bunch of your videos of Africa, Canada, Alaska, and you've taken some pretty impressive animals like bear at like what, 10 yards, um, Cape Buffalo, what animal that you hunted like that actually had you the most concerned? I mean, I think, you know, looking back, I was, I probably shouldn't have been concerned about the baboons as much as I was at the time, but a kid had been defaced, uh, just prior before I went hunting these baboons. And I, so I had that visual, uh, you know, look at this, this kid that had been attacked by baboons and see that he was going to live without a face, you know? And so that was just prior days to where I went baboon hunting with my blowgun, but I was on a, this hunt in a, in a, in a little wooden box blind that they built for me in front of my bait pile that I hadn't put oranges about five yards outside my window. And uh, those dang big male baboons knew I was in there and they jumped, they started jumping and beating on that blind. And, oh, and there was probably 60 to a hundred baboons in total, just all around. And I was in there with my blowgun. It was pretty hair raising, uh, uh, have that happen. But, uh, you know, I think if I'd have stepped outside of the blind, they'd have hauled butt, but who knows, you know, that was pretty crazy, but there was also times where, you know, legitimately I could have died. And both times was in Africa. And the third time was when I speared myself, but the, for animals that were dangerous, um, I was climbing, uh, a real steep incline. Uh, there was a herd of wildebeest moving up, uh, a ridge and, and, I couldn't come in behind him and I couldn't really uh, move in a direction to get a shot at him because of the wind direction was wrong. So the only way I could uh, get out ahead of him was to take a couple hundred yards out around and go up over this rock cliff. And as I was scaling this rock cliff, it was, it got pretty steep towards the, the summit of the, the hill. And uh, there was like a rock out facing and I flipped my bow over on top of it and pulled myself up you know, I was young and stout then. So I, I was climbing pretty good. And when I pulled myself up with both my arms to, to get up on that last leg of the rock where I could get out ahead of those wildebeest, there was something in my face. The sun was shining out of, in front of me and down over the rock into my face. So I was looking up into the sun. And when I looked up, there was something waving in, in like in the wind, but it was like three feet in front of my face when I moved my head to the side out of the sun there it was it was a mamba and he was sunning himself on that rock when I threw my bow up on top of him and when I pulled myself up he raised up in the air about three and a half four feet and yeah. was standing straight up with his head crooked down looking at me like in a strike position and that was a hair raising oh, moment I you know I could, <laughs> just talking about it right now I could feel that 
that cold sensation on my arms, you know, recalling that close encounter with that snake. But I, I held real still because I was petrified. And uh, what seemed like forever, I don't know how long it was, a few seconds, but he just kind of slithered back down and then dropped down into the rocks, you know, and I jumped up there as quick as I could, got my bow and tried to find him. I was going to kill him, but he got away. That was close. And then uh, in Australia, I I think it was close to dying. I was um, in a marsh kind of off a big lake. We were hunting water buffalo and uh, we were in shallow water in, in a skiff, like a canoe. It was a hand carved log that they'd made into a canoe. And uh, I was on the front of the skiff. And when we were coming into this area where we were going to get out and hunt, we got caught up a little bit on a, on a log in, in about three feet of water. So I hopped out of the skiff and then started to pull the, the skiff around. So Buck and our, our tracker could, uh, you know, they were in the boat. I, st I started to pull it and to pull it into the shallow water where we get out and start hunting. Well, in doing so, I took about four steps and stepped right on the back of a crocodile. And he was a freaking monster. I mean, he was a, one of those 1500 pounders. He, and when he shot out from under me, it flipped me up in the air and just scared me to death because he took off so fast the thrust he had with that tail. But he could have easily killed me right there. Uh, and that was a pretty hair raising experience, but had some, uh, had, uh, water Buffalo run over me. Uh, that was my own fault. I mean, I had a spear in my hand and you see that <laughs> uh, moment on my, uh, a lot of my intros, of my show where I'm, I'm walking into a Buffalo that's walking away from me. It all happened so quick. And I was only shooting 30 frames a second on that GoPro at the time. That was one of the first GoPros I used as a spear camera. Um, and when I threw that spear, I was walking up behind him and I had the spear cocked. When I got about four yards from that buffalo, I knew at any moment he's going to smell me, see me or sense me and turn. And when he turns, I'm going to stick him right in the vitals. But I had no idea that that 2000 pound animal was going to spin as quick as he did. Cause the moment he started to spin on me to come for me, I released that spear with all I had. But in that brief moment of time, he was so fast that he completely swapped ends. And by the time the spear headed off for his vitals, he's, he completely turned and it caught him right in the boss of his horn, stuck him right in his horn and it went, bonk right in his horn and when it did he came for me and when he did he he put his head down like he's coming in that charge position and when he did that spear went in the ground right at my feet as I'm turning to run and when he come running at me the spear bent like it broke the spear virtually but when, right before it broke it it bent it so much that where I had taped my camera on the center of the spear, it popped it off and it flew up in the air. And uh, after that, he, he broke the spear and then he ran over the top of me, but he never stepped on me. He didn't stay with me with his boss. He just knocked me down and went right over the top of me and just hauled ass up through the forest. But when I got back home and I watched that video, it was crazy because I caught all that motion and stuff in the spearing. But then when the spear flew up in the air and was twisting in the air, there was one frame it caught. And there was that bull with his head down. It was like a still picture. 
his head down, the spear in the ground at my feet with me with my arms and legs and full run away from him right before I got run over. And uh, that was pretty dang close too. that could have been really bad. But uh, that, you know, that's uh, that's uh, that that's through, you know, 40 years of traveling and, and hunting all over the world and hunting dangerous game, laying in the mud and having them three feet beside you, you know, so. I'd say I've made out pretty good considering the, the, the dangerous game I've been around. Now, you brought up your spear accident. I watched the videos that you've put out for that. Is, is, can you explain kind of what happened and, you know, safety aspects of it for anybody that might ever consider going out with a spear? <laughs> well, the odds of it happening to another person's got to be one in a million. And I was shocked that it happened to me, but I was in the top, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't have anything against using tree stands. Muddy is my favorite tree stand. They sponsor me, but when I'm in Africa and stuff like that, I'm pretty mobile and I may end up in a tree just at a whim, you know? So that's the way I hunted Africa a lot and still do to this day is just climb trees, get in a crotch or sit. The trees there are different than ours in a lot of ways. There's a lot of good flat branches and they grow flat once they reach a certain elevation. So you can climb up in them and sit in them like a dang monkey, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's how I hunted. And I was on this day, I was at the top of this little tree. It wasn't no bigger than my uh, thigh at the base. And I was maybe 10, 12 feet off the ground, maybe 14. I don't know. But anyway, I was up there with my spear and I had uh, a backpack full of alfalfa the best I could carry in and dropped it by this uh, little water hole. And uh, I climbed up in the tree, set my GoPros on the ground, got everything ready. It started getting light. And uh I dropped one of the GoPros out of the tree and it fell down right next to the bait. Well, those African animals are so keen to the awareness of their environment that just a little GoPro, shiny GoPro laying next to the bait, they'll never come into that bait, you know, and I won't be able to spear one. So I knew I had to grow down. Well, I had my spear in the tree. It was just, I, a lot of times I'll stick my, my spear in a limb. Don't I'll stick it in there and then I'll lean it so that when a, something comes out all I have to do is reach for my spear and raise it above my head and throw. So that's my spear was there. Well, I left it there and went down to get that camera. Well, when I got about halfway down the tree, which was probably six feet below the tip of that spear, my foot slipped on one of the branches. And when it did, I shook the tree a little bit. I had a hold of the tree pretty good, but it, I, my weight shook that tree. And when I shook that tree, that spear fell off that limb and I had no idea it was coming. It came down, hit my hat, knocked my hat off. Could have went right through the top of my head, but luckily oh. it went right past my nose and went right through my thigh. And so I'm standing in that tree with that dang spear in my leg and uh, it wasn't painful. It felt like somebody punched me really hard in the leg. But when I looked down, I knew I was in trouble because the blood was spurting out the sides of the spear, you know, that was in my leg. And the night before I had taped some dang uh, hooks on the spear just so that if I speared an animal, it wouldn't come out of them and my camera would catch the retreat. Wow. So now I had the, the tip of the spears out the bottom of my thigh. And so... I start to push the spear out so I can pull that seven foot spear completely through my leg and get it out. But it was so painful when I pushed on it that I didn't want to do that. So I just grabbed, I couldn't jump. I knew if I jumped down or if I tried to climb the, the tree to get my radio that I would, that seven foot spear would cut my leg in half, probably chop my, 
my artery in half and I'd be dead in, you know, 15 seconds. So I just grabbed that spear and jerk, jerked that son of a gun out of my leg and then jumped down on the ground and tried to get my shoestrings out of my, my boot and to, so I could make a tourniquet. The blood was coming so quick, but I was getting lightheaded. I couldn't get, I couldn't think straight. I was trying to get it out and I couldn't do it. I was losing blood. So I just, I just stuck my fingers in the spear hole and found the artery that was pumping blood and closed her up and sat there for 35 minutes, 40 minutes, maybe. I don't know how long it was. And I started feeling like I was coming out of shock and I wasn't going to pass out when I did that. I just, I grabbed that GoPro and, and uh, videoed what was going on and said some stuff to my family. And uh, that's what you see on TV parts of that. What's yeah, the cutting, what's the cutting width on that spear? That was a samburu made by Cold Steel, a very effective spear. Uh, I think the cutting the the cutting diameter is not that much. It's only like two inches. But the problem, the thing about a spear is why they're so effective is they're long. You know, you may have a ten inches long. So uh, once it goes in an animal. Uh, it generally doesn't pass through my spears will because I make them so dang sharp. But uh, if you control the speed of the spear, you can pretty much if you spear enough animals, you know how hard to throw. So it doesn't go through their body because you want it left inside the cavity of the animal. Because once they go running, it's like a mixer, a blender. Uh, it does the job quick. And uh, if I, I've never speared an animal, never that uh, the spear went inside its uh his stomach or you know obviously his chest but once you get it inside the animal uh they just can't recover because when they run it just it tears them in half and that's what right. it would have done to me so i pulled it out and jumped down and you know stopped the bleeding and that was that was a deal now is a spear setup also heavy no not at all i mean there okay. there are spears that are heavy but they're not practical uh, my spear weighs, you know, just a little, little more than two pounds. And then I have another spear that's a little under two pounds, uh, for throwing. I just speared, a uh, a, a red stag in New Zealand, uh, not long ago, that was almost 20 yards down the mountain. And, uh, it was a light, that's my, uh, sparrow spear. It's got fletchings on the back of it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's under two pounds and I smoked him at, 20 yards and it went all the way in there broke his spine and went through his spine and stuck in right between his lungs i always assumed it would have some weight behind it for some extra kinetic energy from your throw you know you know you don't need that extra energy because it's uh uh you know like i speared a hippo i just got back from africa now that that i reared back and because I'd never speared one before and everyone told me it'll never go in. And I was worried about wounding one. So I knew, I didn't believe it would wound him. I, I, I went knowing that this spear is going to kill that sucker, but I thought I had to throw really hard. Well, I did throw hard, but it went right through that two inches of skin and down through a rib and down through his lungs and stuck right in his brisket halfway out his belly. So, I mean, if you can kill a hippo with a light spear, (laughs) (laughs) is that the same concept then with your blowgun darts as well? Cause I know your blowgun darts are made so that the base of it comes off 
so that the tip stays in. Is that a similar concept? Okay. They're not actually made that way, but you've seen oh. me loosen them. So they work that way. Okay. So if a guy's going to hunt a pig or something and uh, you know, maybe you want to shoot a big boar penetration's not a problem with a blow gun. Cause I use little razor points on the end of them. They go in, but the cap will stop it, but you just loosen it up. I rub a little oil off my nose or something on the shaft of my blow dart and then put the cap back on and just wiggle it a little bit so it's loose. And then that dart goes right through them and the cap pops off like you've seen me shoot my black bear with. Mm -hmm. uh, and I killed uh, um, last year or the year before last, I killed a mule deer in Mexico the same way. And and I, But since then, I built a three-blade uh, broadhead called Redtail. And uh, it's a little longer shaft and most of your deer species and stuff like that people don't realize it but you only need about six inches of penetration and you're through a lung and in the heart or whatever you know so um but yeah loosen the cap and then they go right in there and if they don't go out the other side they usually stick in the opposite wall of the chest cavity that's pretty impressive and then is how quick uh you know a three-eighths inch uh razor will kill uh a two three hundred pound animal it's it's just unbelievable i shot a uh kudu cow in africa with it and the neat thing about a blowgun if you, if you keep your wits about you and you shoot them shoot an animal they're already close so they don't know you're there to shoot them with a blowgun i try to shoot big animals under 10 yards so because their reaction time's quick but they'll jump at the shot run a little bit but then they stop and they look back or they you know they don't take off like you shot them with a bow they don't just haul balls unless you do something stupid like stand up and let them see you uh, but all the animals i shoot they usually do, they retreat and then they stop they look back warthogs you shoot them they run out and they turn around and walk back to the bait i've had them walk back and fall over dead in the bait you know they don't even know they're shot you know wow. So that's the neat thing about a blowgun. Yeah, it doesn't leave a good blood trail. And uh, it takes it about, you know, if you're double lunging them, it'll take them 60 seconds to die. Uh, but they usually don't go nowhere. They're, they're dead within 50 yards because they just walk off and die. That's pretty wild. Um, yeah. With all the animals that you've hunted, um, how, how many of them do you eat? And do you have a favorite that you've eaten? Man, you can't beat a red squirrel out of Illinois. That's my <laughs> He is the favorite of all I, to, to, for me. You know, I love birds and quail and stuff like that. But if you could cook cook a, a, a red squirrel, brown him up good, get a good crunch on him, and then put him in the oven and bake him for, oh, you know, a good hour, my, my, my grandpa would eat the oldest of squirrels. I, got, I killed a squirrel. Uh, my son killed a squirrel here about a week ago and uh, grandpa, my, his grandpa, my dad looked at him. He had balls bigger than mine. He was, he was a monster. <laughs> and I said, and, and my dad said, you need to throw him away. I said, no, 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 he'll, he'll be great. And we cleaned five squirrels, including that big old male. And I fried him up and put him in the oven and, put a lid on them with a little bit of water in there and cook them suckers for about an hour. And when it came out, you couldn't tell that old one from the young ones. And he was delicious. And man, you guys got me thinking, I want to go squirrel hunting in the morning. That is that is so far from the answer I expected. <laughs> Same here. It's funny though, because I've been watching alone and they were, I don't remember exactly where they're at, but almost all the contestants on there were eating red squirrel like crazy. Mm -hmm. Seemed oh, to be yeah. like the biggest animal they had available 
for I haven't seen I haven't seen that one. I saw the one where they couldn't eat any squirrels because they were illegal in Canada. Yeah. You know, that was killing me. I was like, come on, man, this is a survivor show and you can't kill a squirrel. <laughs> right? That's what I say every time we watch it. I'm like, how can you tell them what they can or can't survive on? If I'm surviving, I'm surviving. I don't care. I'm sorry, <laughs> but I would be a che- they'll never let me on that show because no. I'll <laughs> I'll be a cheater. But you'd be the only one out there with a glow gun. They'd roll into camp and they'd be like, why are you so fat? (laughs) (laughs) First contestant ever on a load to carry a blow gun and a spear. (laughs) We found bear skulls all around his camp. We don't know what happened. (laughs) You can't invite the slock master to a load. (laughs) (laughs) It's too bad. That'd be an epic show. (laughs) Probably three days into it, I'd be on the cot going, I don't want to die like this. (laughs) This just isn't what I was expecting. I mean, you know that poor guy i don't even know who he was if you've watched them all i'm a big fan of that show i love that show but that one dude man he like three days in he's laying down he's going i don't want to die i was like man he must have signed some kind of release where he doesn't have any say in whether they show the video man because i can see now that big badass guy walking into a bar someone in the people and when he comes in his buddy's over in this in the corner going i don't want to die <laughs> Oh, that's why I never do a reality show. The only reality show that I think I could be really good at is that Naked and Afraid one. Because if I did the Naked and Afraid, I'd make them sign a waiver on there. So, you know, the uh, they always blotch out the, the, the wiener area, you know. <laughs> I'd have them, I'd make them, I'd force them. If you want me on this show, you got to make like that blotch mark. You got to make it like down to my knee. And when I walk, <laughs> when I, walk I want a blotch swing inside the side like an elephant trunk. <laughs> oh, the wife would call me out on that though. She'd say, that's phony. <laughs> oh man, naked and afraid. If anybody's listening, we got your next contestant right here. <laughs> Yeah. So out of all the places you've hunted, is there still places that you want to go you haven't been yet? Well, uh, man, I've been to the best places I wanted to be, but I, I think I need to do more jungle hunts. I want to go to Brazil and stuff and do some bow fishing, uh, you know, for some arapaimas, stuff like that. Uh, you know, I, they still won't let me uh, spear a lion in Africa, which really breaks my heart because, you know, the lions have been speared uh from the very beginning uh but they won't issue me a tag knowing that i want to spear one so that's in my bucket you know i want to do that one of my bucket list items is i want to go see a bullfrog farm Uh, every time i go to a restaurant or something where i order bullfrogs that are commercially raised i've always said to myself how in the heck do they do that you know i want to see how they do those bullfrog farms so i want to do that that's in my bucket and uh yeah, I have, I've done everything I wanted to do pretty much, you know, uh, I don't have a grandkid yet though. Um, I'm looking forward to that someday. Um, yeah, yeah. I always wanted to be rich, but I've uh, I decided that I'm not going to be too rich, I, but I'm pretty dang rich considered what I've got to do throughout my life and who I live with and uh, my family. But, you know, I don't think I'll ever have $50 million in the bank, but that's okay. I can die without that money. <laughs> You got, you got memories. Rich in experience. Yeah. 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 I've had a good life. Been healthy too, man. I've been really fortunate. You know, I've uh, been, never had anything really too bad happen to me or haven't been sick. Uh, Yeah. It's been good. 
anything particular you're looking forward to for the rest of 2023 any trips or anything you got planned yeah, yeah. i'm gonna go down to louisiana here shortly and and try to uh, kill a uh, a shark either with my bow or my spear and then uh, that's always fun i love doing that i like eating sharks and uh gonna take sydney we're gonna go up to idaho and she'll probably walk me half to death but we're gonna try to get her a bull this year up in idaho and uh after that my trail cameras are popping i got three or four deer that are shooters this year and there's probably others wandering around out there so i i love november in illinois or, and uh you know after that i'm going to get down and get after them coyotes with my bow it's going to be fun but uh if there's only one animal in the world i can hunt it'd probably be a coyote and uh so that never gets old when you stick an arrow in one and you walk over there and find him dead it's a Pretty big thrill because they're the smartest, hardest to kill animal one-on-one -on -one anywhere in the world. But, you know, there's so many of them, it doesn't seem like it's such a challenge. But one-on-one, -on -one, he is the greatest challenge. Have, Love you hearing that. have you taken one with a blowgun yet? I haven't killed one with a blowgun. And I know there's a guy in, in uh, Michigan that's uh, uh, invited me. And I wanted to go last year, but it was towards the end of the season uh, and I couldn't make it work. So I'm going to Michigan this year when they get the deep, deep snows, he's got, uh, he's got uh, a lot of coyotes that come into his baits and he's built a blowgun blind. He killed one last year. So uh, that's kind of on a bucket list. Yeah. That'd be cool if I can get one and I'm going to go up there and hunt them with him and uh, maybe I'll get lucky and blowgun one. That'd be neat. But no, I haven't killed too many predators with my blowguns, just raccoons out of the trees and some uh, treed animals like bobcats and stuff like that. I know I could kill a mountain lion. That'd be a slam dunk, but anybody could, you know, the dogs are the hunters. We're just the shooters, but you know how close you can get to a mountain lion. I could smoke him right in the heart, but other than Texas, there's nowhere I, I I'm allowed to do that. Thanks. And, you know, if I leave you guys with anything that you can share, you know, I, I want everything to be progressive about what I do. I don't, I don't want to be strictly an entertainer. I want to be good for wildlife and good for hunting. And uh, I would share that there's a phobia with what I do. You know, I even heard, uh, you know, talk show hosts say how cruel and inhumane spear hunting is and, you know, primitive hunting. Well, Joe Rogan, uh, called him, called us assholes, you know, and that is the farthest from the truth. And the people that talk smack about primitive hunting are the people that know nothing about it. Uh, they have no scientific knowledge. They have no resources that are, uh, reliable because when my spear enters an animal, it dies quicker than you'll ever kill them with your bow. And my recovery rate is way higher than, uh, my recovery rate with a bow. And I love bow hunting. I would do nothing to hurt bow hunting, but I can promise you, you shoot 10 arrow, 10 air, or let's say you shoot a hundred animals with the bow and a hundred with your spear. My recovery rate with that spear is going to be far greater than with the bow and arrow. And, you know, one of the greatest aspects of spear hunting, if we would just in, embrace it and welcome it, how long do you, if you want to hunt an Arizona, let's say you want to go to Arizona unit 25 and kill a big bull elk. How many times in your lifetime are you going to get to do that? You'll be lucky to go three times your entire life and you can live to be old and you may not get to go that many times just because there's no hunter access. You can't draw a tag. It's because the game department there is trying to manage the resource. And if they let everybody hunt every year, there'd be no more big bull elk in Arizona. 
Well, if they would let us spear hunt them, then your success rate would be maybe one or 2%. It would be drastically lower than, than a bow and arrow. The recovery rates for the people that did finally hit one with a spear would be astronomically higher than the other ways of hunting. So they could issue hundreds, thousands more um, permits so that we could hunt the resource, but yet not affect the resource. And we would bring in <clears throat> thousands and thousands more dollars to game and fish. There's nothing but positive things when you talk about spear hunting, uh, uh, big game animals. And uh, I'm really, really excited about what's happening in Arkansas right now. I'm flying down there to testify before, before the uh, uh, game and fish department, the board of uh, directors who set the laws every year. They're going to open spear hunting, it looks like, in, in uh, Arkansas. And it's a really good thing because in Arkansas, you can also bait animals. Uh, I'm not a huge, huge proponent about baiting whitetails. I'm neutral either way on it. But if you're going to spear hunt them, that's a really good thing because now you can get them within range uh, a lot easier than it was before. So that's going to be a huge success. It's been a huge success for Nebraska letting us spear hunt and uh, Alaska. Those folks up there are, are still allowing spear hunting for moose and bear and grizzly and you all the blacktail and uh, caribou and, and uh, not very many of them get killed uh, with spears, but they make a lot of money on the spear hunters that want to try. Uh, so it's good for the resource. It's good for the hunter. Cause I can tell you what I would, I would trade sitting in a tree or hunting elk, maybe every, every other year of my life and hearing the call of the wild and hear that bull and maybe get that bull in there almost to where I spear him, but he still gets away. I'd rather experience that for the next 15 years of my life than to go once and take my bow and kill one. You know, it's just, uh, we need to think about it from that aspect, not just about, oh my God, look how much blood came out when he speared that. Let's make it illegal. Uh, that's something Illinois would do, you know, uh, or California. And why the rest of these conservative states haven't looked at spear hunting, you know, and said, hey, guys, this makes sense. Let's open this up. It's not going to hurt the resource. Uh, it's very ethical. You know, you, you worry about ethics of you know, our, our perspective of how the public views us and so forth. Well, think about the new modern day rifles and you guys are rifle hunters. And so am I, I mean, now they're, they're making guns that, you know, you can kill an animal at 800 yards. I mean, if you got a bull elk and he's broadside and it's not too windy, I mean, I've seen video. I'm not a big proponent of this, but they're sitting in the back of their truck on a tripod and they harvest their elk at 800, 1200 yards. You know, it's like, if you're, if you're one of them people that feel like animals don't have a right with, you know, cause it's not fair. Well, then you should love a spear hunter. By golly, you got to smell his breath throw. You can get a throw at him. So he's going to use all six of his senses. And I mean, six, you know, cause you know what it's like. Sometimes you're like, how did he know I was there? The wind was perfect. You know? yep. But um, so I, I really, uh, I really hope that uh, the truth is told about primitive hunting. And I hope I've been a good ambassador for the sport and not something negative. That's one, one reason why I put cameras on my spears. Uh, it's a, it's very, it's a very t easy way to prove what I'm saying. You know, you ride the animal, you see how quick his death is. Sometimes it's gruesome because the, the blood is coming out. However, 
the more blood loss and the quicker it takes place, the quicker that animal goes to the light. The more gruesome that kill may seem to you, that is more evidence that this is a very ethical, quick, clean kill. And that's why I, I you know, use a spear. Some of my arrows, when I hit an animal, uh, if it's not perfect through the lungs, maybe it'll take them eight hours to die. The big difference, you put the spear in that same location, and he's dead in 30 seconds. So that's my point. And uh, I just hope that uh, if somebody hears this that uh, has the power to change laws or uh, manipulate our liberal governments, that they, they will do that for us. Amen. I appreciate um, you guys having me on here as well. well Thank we you. appreciate you taking the time to join us. Um, I know you have um, your website where you sell the spears and blowguns. Uh, do you want to tell everyone where they can go to find your products and your content? Sure. Uh, Slockmaster.com. Pretty easy. Just go Google the Slockmaster and you'll find my website. But I got all kind of fun stuff on there. I got 40 products now. I've been working with my wife and I and uh, we got a good team of people that test them and use them before we sell them. And now... Bass Pro is a big proponent of the Slockmaster, and I'm an ambassador for them. They're going to pick up the blowguns and uh, some of my other products, as well as the spears. And so if you don't want to jump online and buy them, you can definitely go into a Bass Pro and pick one up. Very cool. Mm -hmm. And then you have the Relentless Pursuit TV show, right? Yep. We're still doing that on the Sportsman's Channel. And you can see all my cool stuff, uh, you know, on YouTube, obviously. And uh, Facebook uh, is uh, millions and millions and millions of views because I post my shows on there. Slockmaster uh, was seen uh, uh, more than a half a billion views last year, over 500 million times uh, through all my platforms. And so if you're looking for the Slockmaster Unless you're old like me, you should have an easy time finding <laughs> Great. Well, thank you very much again for joining us, Tim. We really appreciate it. Well, yeah, thank you very much. I, I enjoyed that conversation and that kind of, like I said, like saying a red squirrel was your favorite thing to eat of all the animals. It's <laughs> not what I expected at all. So thank yeah. you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, yeah. Well, you guys stay out of trouble this, this fall and I uh, hope you uh, keep up the good work. So people's talking a lot of good things about you too. And I think you're doing a good job. Well, thank, thank you, you very much. much. We appreciate that. So thank you everyone for listening and stay tuned for next week's episode of the Overdrive Outdoors podcast. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Josh. Thank you.